I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we have yet another double feature edition of the show. Later on in the program, we'll be talking with James A. Smith, co-host with David Slavik of The Popular Show, about his recent Jacobin magazine piece entitled, The Labor Left's Fatal Contradictions Are Still Unresolved. But first, economist Michael Hudson joins us to discuss his seminal 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, recently released in a third edition that is updated and expanded. Michael explains the origins of the book, how it became embraced by the conservative Hudson Institute and its founder, the futurist Herman Kahn, the role of sanctions in the maintenance of American hegemony, and how the rise of China and Russia could spell the end of American super-imperialism. All that and more in the conversation to follow with economist Michael Hudson. But before we get to that, a word from one of our sponsors, namely the transmedia storyteller Joseph Matheny, known for helping pioneer the genre known as Alternate Reality Games. Joseph has a new audio drama out called Zen. That's X-E-N. And let me tell you, it is quite the mind-bender. But I think you'll be able to tell that for yourself after you hear the promo for Zen. The Zen of the Other, a new audio drama from Joseph Matheny. Words make the walls that trick us into complying with stasis. Zen. The Zen of the Other is a work that follows one man as he attempts to find his way through the jumble of modernity that envelops us all and threatens to strangle us in its tentacles longer than night. Call me Ezra. Names are not important. Cast into a world where the liminal overlaps the world of the paranormal philosophical speculation. Shadows, the void are all painted over. Magic of the deep dark night. Ezra Buckley, struggling to keep his head above water long enough to pluck a jewel of wisdom from the crown of a forest spirit. The very act of writing down the story in static form, carved into clay and hardened, was in itself an act of black magic. In a world devoid of rites of passage, Ezra finds himself on his own as he is confronted with the very real prospect of having a life-changing liminal experience in the woods of Big Sur, if he can survive it. Back to zero, which for me, those days seemed like where the forces of nature wanted me to reside. Is it even real? 
Is it the legendary watchers of Big Sur phenomena or something else? Zen is a work that confronts the questions of identity, modernity, life, the other, and the place for rites of passage in the modern world. Where mystery reigns supreme. Zen. The Zen of the Other. The audio play. Available now on digital.panicmachine.com. Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and your favorite streaming service. Welcome to Parallax Views, economist Michael Hudson, author of the rather influential book, Super Imperialism, now in its third edition. I should also mention the subtitle, The Economic Strategy of American Empire. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Thanks for having me on. So, Michael, where I want to start was this book, Super Imperialism, now in its third edition, Uh, The first edition came out in the 1970s. 1972, one year, uh, August 72, right? One year after America went off gold. And Herman Kahn of the Hudson Institute, which is known for being a a pretty conservative institute, uh, had this to say about the book in 1972. He said, you've shown how the United States has run rings around Britain and every other empire building nation in history we've pulled off the greatest ripoff ever achieved. So I'm wondering, what did Herman Kahn mean by that? And what does it say about uh, the thesis of your book? Well, both of us had been invited to give uh, a meeting at the, uh, a speech at the annual meeting of uh, Drexel Burnham, which was the big uh, junk bond uh, uh, company uh, at the time. And uh, I explained how uh, when America went off gold, the year before in August 71, uh, everybody worried that this was going to be the end of America's diplomatic power. Because uh, by n- between 1945 and 1950, America had built up its gold holdings to 75% of the world's monetary gold. That is the gold held in uh, foreign central banks. And uh, everybody thought, well, America's balance of payments was in what seemed to be chronic surplus. Uh, and uh, America's trade and military uh, was more powerful than anyone else. So that had enabled it to uh, shape world trade. And, uh, but beginning with the Korean War, 1951, uh, America uh, began to run a balance of payments deficit uh, that it had to settle in gold. And every year uh, in the 1950s, 1960s, and into the 1970s, the entire U.S. balance of payments deficit, draining American gold was military in character. So when America went off gold, there was a lot of worry that America was going to lose its ability to tell other nations what to do. Uh, Gold was the means of controlling them. And uh, what I uh, wrote about in super imperialism was, well, what happened when America went off gold? What are central banks going to keep their international reserves in? And at that time, central banks uh, didn't buy companies in other countries. Uh, They weren't direct investors. They only bought the uh, financial securities of uh, treasury bonds of other countries. And so the money that they'd formally spent on gold, the money that was spent off by the balance of payments deficit, by the military spending abroad, 
was recycled into the purchase of US government funds. So other countries were not only financing the America's balance of payments deficit and supporting the dollar, they were uh, supporting uh, an, a growing part of the, the America's domestic government budget deficit. Not that the government needed this money. The government, of course, can print its own money to finance the budget deficit. But what it needs, needed foreign investment in treasury bonds was, was to support the dollar's exchange rate so that it would be high priced against uh, other countries. Uh, high prices benefited primarily the financial markets. If the dollar would go down, then it would be more expensive to buy out other countries' industry, other countries' uh, resources, uh, and foreign investors would tend to avoid buying U.S. stocks and bonds because uh, if they de uh, the dollar declined, these stocks and bonds would be worth less than uh, foreign currencies. So America uh, it turned out to have an uh, have the Treasury bill standard replacing the gold standard, and the Treasury bill standard foreign countries keeping their international savings and loans to the U.S. government to spend on building 750 military bases all around the world to control them militarily instead of economically uh, became the new key to uh, American imperialism. And Herman, uh, I was told by uh, my friends at Drexel Burnham that Herman was probably going to hire me on the spot. Uh, and Herman did. He said, I'm going to hire you. You'll be the number two man. And you've shown how we've run a ring around the Europeans who never thought uh, that they could get away with uh, having other people uh, buy paper gold, meaning uh, U.S. Treasury bill instead of uh, actual uh, real gold. And uh, I said, well, you know, I'm uh, teaching at uh, the new school. I'm an economics professor at the graduate school. And he said, look, uh, if you're a professor, you're hoping that one day one of your students is going to uh, be a politician or maybe even president, you'll influence them. You don't have to wait for that. If you join me at the Hudson Institute, I'll, I'll take you to the White House next month. Uh, I'll, I'll, you know, put you, uh, introduce you to the uh, cabinet. You can talk directly to them. Uh, that was very persuasive, especially when he quadrupled my salary uh, from what I was getting as a uh, lowly professor. Uh, and uh, basically, I uh, uh, found out that uh, it was I became a futurist. Uh, the Hudson Institute at that time was known as a futurist institute. And Herman Kahn was a futurist. Uh, Alvin Toffler was a futurist and he became a friend of mine too. So instead of becoming an economist, uh, as the economics profession was getting narrower and narrower, I became a futurist. Uh, what surprised me was uh, that the main audience for superimperialism was not the left wing, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, Herman Kahn said the CIA and the State Department. He said at the largest bookstore in Washington, where he shopped, uh, the CIA had bought uh, 2,000 copies to distribute to its staff uh, and the State Department uh, as a how-to-do-it book. So I thought that uh, the how-to-do-it book would be read by uh, countries that wanted to withdraw from uh, the U.S. empire. Instead, it became a uh, how-to-do-it book for the American empire. Well, as a result, I, I was able to sit in on uh, many discussions at the White House, the Treasury, um, uh, various military uh, uh, meetings, all uh, understanding just exactly uh, how the uh, empire worked. And, and just to make clear, you weren't necessarily in agreement with all the maybe political views of uh, the, the sort of conservative elements of the Hudson Institute. 
No, not at all. But uh, Herm, uh, they didn't really, they were real. Herman was a realist. Uh, he had uh, a very good uh, practical, pragmatic uh, judgment, and uh, he agreed uh, what I was doing. Uh, he said that for him, uh, the most important thing in his life was Zionism. Obviously, that's not mine. Uh, I'm uh, one-eighth American Indian and uh, half Irish, and uh, the rest is uh, English. So uh, we had a different ethnicity. And I certainly wasn't uh, a, a militarist, but uh, Herman Kahn, well, uh, being a realist, he, he had written a book, Thinking the Unthinkable, uh, about the future of atomic war. That had made him the model for Dr. Strangelove uh, in the movie. Uh, and he was very realistic. He said, well, there, you know, there would, in an atomic war, there would be people uh, to survive. You know, here's what, uh, let's think about what would actually happen. And then uh, he brought me out, out for dinner with uh, some, some leading American generals uh, in Vietnam. And I thought, you know, he said, you, know, you just have to be very polite. Don't insult them, you know, don't disagree. But, you know, I just want you to meet them to know where they're at. So I went to dinner and uh, the generals gave, the, this was the leading general in Vietnam, uh, gave, gave the most anti-war speech I had ever heard from any, any peace rally. There's no chance at all that we have in winning. All we're doing is driving them uh, to the, the Vietnamese, uh, uh, to the others to uh, oppose us. Uh, there's, uh, we can't possibly win. The people we're supporting are corrupt uh, because Joe Kennedy was a Catholic and he supported DM because uh, DM's willing to kill the non-Catholics and they're the ones who tend to be communists. Uh, he said, it's not a, a communist revolution. It's a nationalistic revolution. And we should have just given Vietnam uh, uh, support, co-opted it and uh, helped arm it against China, which is what it looked at it as its real uh, enemy. I thought, oh my God, so the military is all against it. They said, we have uh, no way of uh, standing up against the, the government that is fanatically anti-communist, anti-communist meant anything that threatened Wall Street's money. Well, <laughs> I, I, that was not exactly what I expected. Uh, so I spent the next uh, four or five years uh, going around with uh, Herman. Uh, we had um, an uh, international corporate environment study. Basically, we'd go and argue, disagree with each other. Herman would say he sees the glass half full. I'd say the glass is half empty. And so uh, he didn't expect everybody to agree, just the opposite. Uh, people got to choose uh, between whether they supported uh, his uh, pro-American view or my view that uh, uh, America was moving towards neoliberalism that was going to end up destroying the economy by financializing it instead of industrializing it. In other words, you were sort of agreeing on the analysis, but maybe disagreeing on uh, if this was good or bad or where it was taking us. And I think it's interesting. I know that the book, Super Imperialism, that wasn't your original title for it. You wanted to call it uh, Monetary Imperialism. And I want you to talk a little bit about why you preferred that title and also what the role of organizations like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank are in this story? Well, most people think of money as being something that you earn, something you save up, something uh, solid. And uh, I wanted to call it monetary imperialism because uh, if you have uh, gold as your monetary reserve, that's a simply an asset with no debt attached to it. But money in the form of foreign central bank holdings, 
of uh, U.S. Treasury securities is simply IOUs for money that's spent militarily on extending uh, overseas military spending. And the governments can print their own money. When, when the United States simply can issue a treasury bond, it can simply issue money. The, the, the dollar bills or $10 bills uh, that you have in your pockets or the $100 bills that are held abroad by drug dealers and kleptocrats uh, are, are simply printed. Uh, they're, uh, they're not necessarily, uh, the government doesn't have to save up. They don't have to be backed by anything but the U.S. promise to pay. And there's no way that America can ever repay the vast amount of foreign debt it has. If it would pay, actually pay the foreign debt that it owes, all this money, all these U.S. Treasury securities, all the dollar bills, they're actually U.S. debt. And if the U.S. had to pay it, it would have to sell its industry. Uh, off to foreign countries. It would have to devalue the dollar. It would have to uh, uh, do what it makes uh, Argentina and uh, other uh, global south uh, debtor countries uh, do. Uh, so I wanted to call it monetary imperialism, but the book was published by Holt Reinhardt. My editor had gone uh, to college with a Stalinist who wanted to call it super imperialism. And actually in the introduction, I'd uh, referred to Karl Kautsky's uh, a term uh, super imperialism, uh, meaning um, the U.S. taking over after World War One. So I, I okay, we'll call it that. And super imperialism is uh, just not as specific that it is specifically monetary in character. But what makes it super is that the United States really is the only uh, world money that is debt money. Uh, the euro uh, is not a bit, uh, able to be created for more than 3% of Eurozone gross domestic product. And that, that's not very much. Uh, only the United States can just flood the whole world economy by money by just simply uh, uh, printing it electronically uh, as much as it wants to buy out foreign resources, to spend militarily abroad, to, to run a trade deficit or do whatever it wants with it. So it's as if you could go to a store and buy your groceries just by signing an IOU. And when the grocer at the end of the month said, okay, now can you settle your bill? You'll say, well, you know, I don't have the money, but you know, pay uh, your suppliers with it. And then uh, the IOU just gets into circulation and you never have to repay it. Well, that's a system that uh, America has implied, uh, has created for itself. But uh, you mentioned the International Monetary Fund. The International Monetary, uh, there's a double standard in world fin finance. The International Monetary Fund tells other debtor countries that uh, uh, spend more than they uh, uh, earn, that they have to impose austerity program and uh, uh, devalue the currency, which means devaluing the price that their labor exchange for in uh, other countries, and uh, sell off their uh, basic public domain, sell off their infrastructure, sell off their national railroads, sell off their oil reserves, mainly the US investors to buy, and uh, so the, the U.S. investors will get 20%, 30% return on these investments, and uh, uh, the governments will end up with U.S. Treasury uh, bills that are yielding now less than 1%. So it's a free lunch. So the international monetary system is really a free lunch for the United States, but not for anybody else. Uh, and the, we're seeing the crisis that, uh, that all this has caused coming to a head uh, today with uh, the fight by America against its, its main adversaries. Its main adversaries are uh, England, Germany, the rest of Europe, 
uh, Japan and its allies. Uh, and it fears that uh, these a these a adversaries were uh, uh, the people who had agreed in the wake of World War II uh, to rules of world trade and investment that the United States laid down uh, by the IMF and the World Bank. And the World Bank, for instance, uh, uh, would only make foreign currency loans uh, to third world countries uh, to export. Uh, it would not make any loan to a country that wanted to grow its own food because its directors uh, most, were almost always uh, uh, American military heads, uh, Bob McNamara, uh, McNamara uh, a number of other heads, and the first, John J. McCloy, uh, were heads of it. And uh, they used the World Bank and its foreign lending to lock in America's uh, ag agricultural surpluses by saying no country should grow its own food. You have to depend on the United States for your food. We are all we're opposing land reform. We're, we want plantation agriculture for export crops that can't be grown in the United States. So there's no rivalry. Uh, the, the United States, both between the IMF and the World Bank, the US uh, shaped the world economy as a service economy to help the United States grow at uh, ver uh, the countries that were following IMF advice had very slow growth in their uh, export earnings, very slow growth in their GDP. All of their surplus was being siphoned off by US trade and US investment favoritism. Uh, so uh, right now, uh, the fact is other countries didn't have much of an alternative after World War II, uh, because as I said, the US had most of the world gold, it had the world military dominance, but in the last few years, for the first time, there's an alternative. And uh, uh, Western Europe, the NATO countries, uh, East Asia are seeing uh, China's growth uh, take off. Uh, they're seeing uh, even Russian growth uh, taking off. And so you're having a situation where Germany, most uh, obviously, wants to buy Russian gas. And America, uh, Donald Trump said, no, uh, buy, uh, spend 10 times as much for your gas by buying LNG, liquid, uh, liquefied national gas natural gas, of which the U.S. is a major exporter. So Angela Merkel agreed to spend a billion dollars in building a port just to import high-priced American liquidified natural gas in, uh, so that it didn't have to buy uh, Russian uh, gas. But as it turned out, Merkel uh, wasn't reelected, nor was uh, Donald Trump. So the plan was canceled. And now uh, there's pressure in Germany to buy Russian natural gas. If it doesn't buy it, there are going to be a lot of German houses that freeze over and their pipes are going to burst this winter because we're coming into the two uh, cold winter months in Germany, February and March. Uh, and uh, you had at the end of uh, uh, last month, uh, end of January, uh, Victoria Newland, uh, the number four in the State Department, saying, well, we're going to block it. We're going, uh, we're, we're going to uh, prod Russia and make Russia do something that's so militarily unpleasant that we can then go uh, uh, to Germany and say, uh, you can't, you, you must impose sanctions. Uh, and she spelled out, uh, Newland spelled out exactly, we're going to uh, make sure that they don't uh, approve the regulatory process. We're going to stall. We're going to do everything to prevent them from trading with the Russians. We want them to trade with us. We want we want to get all the benefits of German income. And if their prices go up, 
uh, for gas, all the better. It, it'll be more expensive for them to make cars. It'll be more expensive for them to, uh, to compete with it. She all but said Germany is our enemy. Uh, and uh, the same thing uh, with China. But the fact is that these sanctions are aimed at America's allies. Uh, Lithuania, for instance, was told, uh, you've got to break uh, uh, relations with, with uh, Russia. Uh, we're putting sanctions on Russia because uh, for all we know, they're going to march into Europe and uh, it's only a step from there to Rhode Island. Uh, and so uh, Lithuania uh, stopped uh, importing, exporting any of its cheese to Russia. So uh, it's, it's axiomatic that whenever you have a sanctions against a country, that's like protective tariffs for this country. Almost immediately, Russia set up its own cheese industry. It's now independent in cheese. It'll never have to turn to Lithuania again for cheese. Lithuania lost it. Uh, Lithuania's uh, rail, na uh, National Railroad uh, made money by transporting uh, from Belarus uh, uh, basic uh, potash, which is used for fertilizer. And Lithuania said, no, no, we won't let Bel Belarus as a friend of Russia. Uh, we're going to do what the United States tells us to do. We're not going to uh, transport the uh, fertilizer anymore. This was great news for Russia because Russia is the other producer of potash. And uh, now uh, Belarus uh, potash is sent over the Russian uh, railroad, you know, up towards uh, a port near St. Petersburg. Uh, and uh, Lithuania also followed the U.S. to sort of stick our finger in China's eye. So we're going to recognize Taiwan. So China said, OK, we're not going to buy any uh, uh, imports. Uh, from Lithuania, and that includes uh, any Lithuanian imports and German cars. I'm sorry, Germany, we can't buy any cars south from you anymore. Uh, I mean, so, uh, and America says, that's okay, folks, take it on the chin for the United States. Well, the question is, how long are other, going to, are other countries going to sacrifice their own economic welfare just not to benefit the United States? Uh, you had uh, a few weeks ago, uh, French uh, uh, Macron, uh, urging that Europe has its own army. What do we need NATO for? Russia is, no country is going to invade any other country. Russia uh, withdrew from Europe and there's no way that uh, Soviet tanks are ever going to roll through Germany and uh, other Western countries again. No country can afford to occupy any other country. All you can do is bomb them, as America showed in Libya, Iraq, Syria, uh, Afghanistan. They're not willing to, if you're not willing to invade a country with troops, Meaning, if you're not willing to have a military draft and send uh, your children into the army, then uh, you're not going to be able to really control any other country. So uh, there, there's no chance uh, of Russia actually uh, invading. So the United States has to sort of prod it uh, to do something that looks military so that it can have an ever-present threat. And the United States needs these uh, to give the illusion of this threat because one of the few supports of its balance of payments is arms exports. Uh, it has to uh, convince other countries to buy enormously expensive American arms, like the F-35 airplane that you know, doesn't really fly very well, uh, but costs a lot of money. Uh, and these arms, the American military is not a fighting military. It's, uh, it employs uh, labor and uh, capital to make profits for the military industrial complex, but uh, its arms are never meant to be used in an actual war. So you're having a kind of fantasy uh, world that is uh, uh, prompting other countries to say, 
do we really want to agree with this fantasy? What do we have but to, uh, uh, to gain by remaining in the U.S. Uh, trade orbit and investment orbit when we see the world growth being led by China, Russia, and Eurasia? So uh, the more sanctions that America is imposing on, on Russia and China, the more it's driving them together into a Eurasian core. Uh, China's then bu uh, building the build Belt and Road Initiative to integrate uh, its trade, you know, moving west. And to the United States today, the whole question is, is it going to lose its empire? Is it going to lose Western Europe? Is it going to lose Japan, uh, South Korea, the Philippines? Are all these countries going to decide that uh, their future now uh, lies in making money for themselves instead of sacrificing their economic surplus by following uh, a US-centered world order? So in other words, what's happening right now and the plays the U.S. is making, uh, essentially the U.S. is trying to prevent uh, other countries like Germany from finding an alternative uh, to the current international system that really benefits the U.S. Yes. So uh, before we close out here, where do you see uh, super imperialism going? Because I know you have a uh, section in the book about uh, the end of super imperialism. Well, the end of super imperialism is uh, occurring at the point where the United States becomes a failed economy. And uh, it's essentially, it made the uh, decision to deindustrialize in the 1990s under the Clinton administration. Uh, the American employers wanted to essentially break the backs of Americans' labor union break the backs of American labor. And it started this with the NAFTA, uh, the a trade agreement with uh, Canada and Mexico to get low priced labor abroad by letting firms set up maquiladoras on uh, the Mexican Northern border uh, to produce instead of uh, hiring uh, Texan and other Southern labor. And uh, then inviting uh, China into the uh, World Trade Organization. The idea is uh, we can, we can uh, stop American wages from going up forever by uh, producing in China and other low-wage countries instead of the United States. So there was no rivalry between America and China in letting China become the industrial center of the world. That was U.S. prompting that led uh, China to do that. That was uh, U.S. companies investing in China, promising them a market, transferring the technology so that they could produce enough to undersell America. So deindustrialization was the strategy of American empire. They had hoped that they could uh, finance uh, their continued control, not by uh, being an exporter, except for arms exports, oil and gas and agriculture, but by uh, essentially by financial means, by making uh, lending money to China and other countries, investing, making huge stock market gains in the Russian stock market from 1994 to 1996, uh, in the Chinese stock market, uh, and that they could somehow make enough uh, financially to uh, end up on top. Well, the they, of course, were the 1%. Uh, the financial firms, uh, the large uh, corporations, uh, the they uh, were not uh, the 99% American uh, wage earners. Uh, and so basically the plan of uh, sort of the division of world labor was uh, uh, designed 
against uh, American labor. Well, now they've deindustrialized, and now the question is, if America doesn't have anything except uh, uh, arms exports that are not really needed, agricultural exports, that now uh, Russia is, is the largest grain exporter, thanks to US sanctions uh, against it, and uh, uh, pharmaceutical exports, now that, uh, that uh, China and Russia are producing uh, uh, their own vaccines, what does the world need uh, the United States for? This leaves the United States in danger of becoming not only a failed economy, but as we're seeing politically, a failed state. And uh, the question is, how can a failed state run a whole empire? You're back to the uh, Roman Empire, and uh, we all know what happened to it. So before we close out, the last thing I wanted to uh, just get your thoughts on is, you know, we, we just came off of the, the latest meeting at uh, Davos. And, you know, I've been looking at things like the World Economic Forum for a while. And, you know, there's a lot of people that think, oh, the, the World Economic Forum has all figured out they're going to do this, this and this. Uh, you know, there, there's a very conspiratorial view of the World Economic Forum. I take a more cynical view in a lot of ways. I think a lot of what I see coming out of the World Economic Forum is uh, I, I think there's a lot of delusions. I think the U.S. has delusions. I think the the 1% have delusions about what they're going to do going forward to keep the train going. Uh, I was wondering, do you agree with that assessment or uh, do you have another view on that? Well, the question is, what are they solving? Are they solving uh, the problem of how the 1% can get richer? That's what they're trying to do. Or are they solving how to make the 99% more prosperous? That's not their aim. Uh, their aim is how, uh, how can we live in a world where there's uh, too much uh, population, too many people that are not helping us make money. Well, solution, cut back the population. If you're not making money for American investors and for corporate Europe, what's the point of uh, growing? It's, uh, uh, they're, they're solving the question of how can we make money financially without working? How can we get a free lunch? How can we become more efficient parasites treating the host? And the question is, how long do they have to keep the host economy alive to keep bleeding it? Uh, so essentially, their solutions are uh, those of a parasite sitting on a host and thinking, how should I manage this host so that it will feed me the most? And, and also, because I just thought of it, I don't know if you can comment on this, but um, you know, th there's a lot of talk about immigration these days. And I was wondering what your thoughts on the, the topic of immigration are, because I, I have a, a strange view on it. I, I really think that the 1% uh, is very exploitative. Uh, towards immigrants and uh, basically treats them almost like a, a form of slave labor. Well, the whole idea of immigration since the 1950s is, uh, was uh, Mexicans and Latin Americans come up to harvest the California uh, uh, food crop. Uh, they, were they were seasonal laborers. Uh, and beginning with the uh, Carter administration, but much more in the Clinton administration, the idea is to move uh, to expand this labor from seasonal laborers to uh, a more steady uh, supply of labor. So uh, from the employer's point of view in the United States, the corporate point of view, the more labor they have, uh, the more the reserve army of the unemployed, as Marx put it, uh, the lower the wages are. So they look at it simply, how do we keep the wages down and immigration may uh, uh, keep the wages down? Uh, the question is, uh, how do you get uh, the very uh, highly educated, most uh, productive immigrants? Well, obviously there's a double standard. Uh, they, let Im they let immigrants in that will help make uh, profits 
for their employers. But uh, immigrants that don't have an employer to make a profit out of don't have that much to offer an economy that's run by the employers. So then in closing, I'd like you to let my listeners know how they can get a copy of the third edition of Super Imperialism and any uh, closing thoughts. I mean, it it seems like we're moving into a multipolar world, as some have have put it, uh, whether the U.S. likes it or not. Well, all my books are available on Amazon. Uh, that's the simplest thing. Uh, the bookstores of, uh, in New York City have been pretty much replaced by uh, shoe stores where the profits are much higher than selling books. Uh, and the rents are so high here that uh, uh, there are very few bookstores to buy the books in. So Amazon is probably the place to go, not only for super imperialism, but for uh, other books uh, like Killing the Host, where I describe the financial dynamics of the domestic American economy. Uh, and in a few months, I'm coming out really with sort of a sequel to super imperialism, The Destiny of Civilization. And that's being typeset in China right now. Uh, and uh, it should the, uh, we're doing the index and the indexing and typesetting should be finished in about another month or two. So that'll be available in the spring. And, and just that, that final thought there, are, are we moving towards sort of an inevitable uh, different world than the one we've had before? One would hope so. <laughs> One would ho- uh, you, you'd use the word multipolar. That's what it's going to be. Uh, it's not possible for one country to uh, uh, dominate uh, the world with its own IOUs uh, as the world's money. Uh, uh, by threatening to cut uh, Russia and China off from the bank clearing system, SWIFT, uh, America has forced them to develop their own bank clearing system. There, and by uh, when you when America grabbed Venezuela's uh, foreign investments in the United States, and the Bank of England grabbed uh, Venezuela's gold supply and said, "We're going to give it to the person we've adop- appointed as president, uh, Guido, uh, Mr. Guaido, uh, taking giving it to him, not Venezuela, to import uh, uh, food food with." Uh, then. Obviously, uh, you're having other countries saying, well, we better not hold dollars anymore because the United States can simply cancel uh, the dollar deposits. They can simply do with our gold what uh, uh, America told England to do with Venezuela's gold. So uh, Russia and China are now uh, keeping their savings in, in gold and each other's currencies with swap arrangements and with uh, uh, euros to some extent. So the whole world is de-dollarizing. And once they de-dollarize, there's no means of supporting uh, the dollar's exchange rate anymore. And without uh, uh, that means that America's continuation of military spending is going to reduce the dollar. And if it reduces the dollar, that will crash the stock and bond markets. And the financial crash will follow in the way of America's already uh, self-inflicted industrial collapse. Well, I want to thank you again, Michael Hudson, for coming on Parallax Views. Your website is Michael dash hudson.com thank you again michael hudson good to be here well i hope you enjoyed my conversation with economist michael hudson author of super imperialism the economic strategy of american empire now available in a third edition updated and expanded next up james a smith joins us to offer a dissection of what has gone wrong for the labor left, especially in light of the defeat of the Corbynist project. 
I think this will be a controversial conversation for many listeners, as James offers critiques of COVID measures, specifically lockdowns, big tech and the strategy of deplatforming, and finally, the left's relationships with technocratic centrism and populism. But before we get to the conversation, a word from one of our sponsors. This time, it's musician Rick Berlin, author of the new book, The Big Balloon, A Love Story. I wrote The Big Balloon, A Love Story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Welcome to Parallax Views. James A. Smith of The Popular Show, uh, also with a friend of the show, uh, David Slavik, and author of the piece we're going to be talking about on this episode. It's in Jacobin Magazine. It's entitled The Labor Left. Fatal Contradictions Are Still Unresolved. Uh, How are you doing today? I'm very well indeed. Thanks very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here on Parallax Views. So I want to talk about this article, uh, which deals with uh, the labor left in the UK and the problems that has been facing uh, since the, I would say, downfall of uh, Jeremy Corbyn and the sort of uh, Corbynist wave. Yeah. I guess first, uh, what do you see as being behind that? Uh, what I, I think you tackle it from a more uh, structural perspective. Yeah, that's right. And, um, and and I hope that something that I have to say is applicable to the, in many ways, structurally similar downfall of the of the Bernie project. Uh, I, I guess there's been endless uh, ink spilled over why those left populist electoral experiments of the 2010s failed. And what what I was more interested in doing uh, in this text was thinking about what the representatives of those projects and their support base has done since that failure. So not relitigating the the original failure. But there's been, not to interrupt you, but there's been like a million and one articles right on uh, what the left has done wrong, what the left has to do, you know, uh, and this, this is a much more complicated piece than that. 
Well, you know, I, in, um, in my book, Other People's Politics, uh, Populism to Corbynism, I actually complain that it's like the easiest uh, gig in the world is saying, you know, oh, here are my hard lessons for the left. But you stick around long enough and you end up needing to express some hard lessons for the left. So here it is. But yeah, I mean, my, my point really is like, for quite a lot of us, it, it, it's, oh, well, you know, those, those very optimistic, youthful projects that had all the answers to the ills of neoliberalism, they've been sort of, you know, preserved in amber. And one day, our time will come around again, and we'll come back out, circumstances will be more favourable, and the left will win. I'm arguing that what we're doing now, never mind what we did before Corbyn and Bernie lost, what we're doing now is really ominous for any chance of that victory. Um, so we're being self defeating and self-destructive is my argument but even worse there's cause to believe that we're actually contributing to something actively regressive so it's those two things arguing that what we're doing right now does not bode well for any return of those new new left projects and also that we might be unconsciously or unknowingly uh, supporting some pretty bad stuff along the way could you elaborate on that? Because I, I feel like a lot of the article um, is sort of pointing towards, I, I think there's contradictions on the left when it comes to uh, whether or not the left is supportive of technocracy or populism. Yeah, so I, I mean, to, to get into the specific like British detail, British circumstances that the, the piece you know, takes as its kind of case study. Uh, as soon as the exit poll showed uh, in 2019 that we'd lost the election, the Corbyn project um, ha had been roundly defeated and rejected straight away, all of the people who had maybe had a diversity of views on Brexit and whether the Labour left should be supporting or, 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 um, or, or going against Brexit, all of that disappeared in a second and all of us were saying that the Corbyn project lost not because people have rejected socialism or, or radical social democracy but because we had been seen as trying to stop Brexit. So immediately a lesson from my point of view a lesson was learned about don't side with technocracy uh, against populism or don't be seen to be doing that. Um, uh, my claim is that how the kind of residual Corbyn supporters have responded to subsequent crucial issues since 2019 suggests that they haven't learned the lessons at all and that they're ultimately approaching um, the new issues that have come along since 2019. I'm arguing they have responded to those issues in a manner that is structurally the same as the mistake they made over Brexit. I can get into the detail of those kind of crucial examples, um, which are, first of all, the fact that Keir Starmer would not have defeated the Corbyn candidates, Rebecca Long-Bailey, to succeed Corbyn if it wasn't for the support of a significant number of Corbyn supporters. Number one, voting for Keir Starmer, first mistake made by a lot of former Corbyn supporters. Number two, uh, the fact that it, it, it seems that the the issue that has most animated uh, the former Corbyn rump has been 
a change to Britain's electoral system to proportional representation. I don't want to go on about that too much because the blood drains from the body at the mere idea that this is uh, something that, you know, that passionate, beautiful project of Corbynism should now be uh, uh, getting obsessed with this constitutional kind of issue that no one cares about that too easily translates to, well, we lost under the current system, so let's change the voting system. Um, and more crucially, um, the fact that in Britain, the people who have been most supportive of the most extreme anti-COVID measures, the most pro-lockdown, uh, has been, unfortunately to my mind, um, the radical left. Now, uh, before getting into those like examples and those issues specifically, if I can just stay general um, for a little moment, the claim in the article, and this is the part that I think applies uh, just as much in America and, and elsewhere as it does in Britain, my claim is that the reason why the British left got Brexit so wrong is um, best understood in language used by um, socialist writer in the 1960s, Harold Raper, who analysed what he calls socialism from above, which is technocratic and tendentially moralising, as opposed to what he wanted, which was a chaotically democratising socialism from below. Uh, a lot of us talk the talk on socialism from below in the Corbyn and Bernie projects, but ultimately, I think, uh, looking back at the the charge sheet, as it were, shows that on for quite a lot of the time, quite a lot of the basis of those projects, at least, lent towards socialism from above. And if I, I can give a sort of checklist of how socialism from above tends to um, manifest itself today, this is in, in some ways the, the part that I really want people to kind of get from the article. Um, it, it, this is a checklist, and I just want the, the radical left, whenever they're faced with an issue, to look at their kind of instinctive response and think, ah, how does this match up with the checklist? Here are the points. Today, the dynamic of socialism from above usually takes the form of some combination of the following habits. Number one is anti-populism. I'm taking that term from Thomas Frank's uh, last book, actually, a, a kind of misanthropic suspicion that the people are tendentially reactionary, racist, and ignorant, and have to be worked around, tricked, controlled. Hyperpartisanship, you know, when the Corbyn projects, the Bernie project started, we thought that we hated, you know, Blairites, we hated Clintonites more than uh, even the right did. The drift uh, uh, has been that actually it seems like we hate the enemies of those parties more than like the mainstream of those parties even do. Bernie people hate Republicans far more than mainstream Democrats do. Uh, in Britain, the, the evil Tories are always the focus, when actually the fact that uh, the mainstream of the Labour Party is as supportive and as guilty of furthering neoliberalism uh, as the right is, um, it ends up getting lost. Um, a revulsion at petty bourgeois nationalism that is not matched by an equal dislike of what I call Davos class globalism. We, we, we uh, are, are kind of mortified and horrified by the kind of MAGA, Brexiteer, small mindedness about immigration, etc. But we don't tend to have the same instinctive revulsion for uh, the at least equally uh, evil effects of globalization. So we end up kind of just getting subsumed by 
uh, one side of that intra-elite conflict, and finally a retreat from class and towards liberal bourgeois institutions and procedures, and a kind of a kind of instinct that says that the left is there to let deserving um, minority aspirants rise in the current system, as opposed to fundamentally challenging the system as it is. So, so that's my that's my checklist. That is where I think the British left failed on Brexit. Uh, it, it came up short on all of those issues. And that is where it's come up short on um, the, the interest it's taken in electoral reform and the support it's given for maximal um, COVID restrictions. So there's a few things I want to unpack there. But since you mentioned Brexit, it's always interested me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not... Uh, British, of course, I'm, I'm here in the you know USA, uh, but I, I've followed uh, politics and and um, left thought in Britain, and I, I found it interesting. Uh, you know, for years, I think there was uh, a Euro skepticism from the left. Uh, how did that change? I mean, I, for a while there was even talk of of Lexit. Uh, you know, the the left breaks it. But that seems to have uh, completely gone away. What's behind that? Yeah, well, in um, in the 1975 referendum on Britain's continued member, Britain had joined the European Economic Communities uh, as as it was then uh, under the Conservative governments. Um, and when Labour came in, they held a referendum on the continued membership of that. Uh, the Labour Party and the Tory Party supported uh, continued membership of the EEC, but there were people in both parties who supported withdrawing and did not want to be part of European integration and believed that the kind of prototype for the European Union was an anti-democratic exercise in containing the economic policies of member states. And Tony Benn, um, who is kind of one of the heroes of, of British socialism, really, um, he was in the Labour, in Harold Wilson's Labour cabinet at the time, and he and other members of the, of the, of, of the radical left were permitted to campaign against um, membership to Europe. And actually, Tony Benn campaigned alongside a very, very right-wing figure, Enoch Powell, um, in uh, that Eurosceptic campaign. So in the 1970s um, and uh, even in the 1980s, it was perfectly natural that socialists would be mistrustful of anything that could be seen as taking economic policy out of democratic control. And after all, um, the, the radical left in the 1970s uh, was in favour of extending economic democracy, extending um, cooperative ownership of businesses in quite the way that Corbynism would be um, decades later. So, yeah, there is a long history of left-wing economic aims and a left-wing belief in um, democratic oversight of the economy that has been very hostile to Europe. However, in the 1980s, with the massive defeat of the trade union movement, increasingly the left in Britain came to see Europe as the place where some kind of residual form of post-war social democracy 
could be protected and preserved. They actually turned to the European Union as a way of protecting Britain's residual social democratic infrastructure from the Conservative Party. So that is where a kind of anti-democratic impulse in the British left, as far as Europe goes, came in. And even figures as, uh, uh, as smart as Perry Anderson uh, or Christopher Hitchens in the 90s really saw the EU that way, as protecting Britain from itself, as slowing the, the, the pace of neoliberalism. So it's a very, it's a very passive kind of conceding to Europeanism on the part of the British left, which by the time you got to the referendum in 2016, although there were a handful of voices that, that uh, stood for Lexit, um, they, they were pretty much swamped by this increasingly moralized kind of idea that if you were against the European Union, then you were necessarily a racist or at least very tolerant of racism. Corbyn himself had historically been highly Eurosceptic, had always voted against um, Britain's ongoing um, integration into Europe. And actually, you know, it, it would be very interesting to think what a Corbyn project which stuck to Corbyn's own instincts on that and other issues might have looked like. Um, it was really Corbyn working against his own uh, instincts when he allowed himself to be led by his party uh, into being a kind of impediment to um, to Brexit uh, in the immediate aftermath of the referendum. Yeah, the, the whole Brexit thing has always interested me too, because, I mean, for me, whether you like Brexit or not, I mean, the referendum happened and you sort of have to work within uh, the reality of that. Otherwise, I mean, essentially, I think a lot of people wanted to find a way to reverse course, essentially, and go against what the vote was. And you know, I, I don't know how you actually are able to do that, really. No. And in 2017, we didn't propose to do that. We showed some leadership and said Brexit is going to happen. And all the sort of, you know, left liberals, all of the centrist liberals who have a huge amount of identity tied up with the European Union, they were willing to go along with that. What happened after 2017 was uh, the kind of the neoliberal centrists inside the Labour Party and in Britain's kind of liberal press, The Guardian, The New Statesman, all of them saw Europeanism and the EU and Remainism as a kind of way of being a kind of wedge to get rid of Corbyn, to divide Corbyn from his young supporters. So a lot of the people who suddenly found themselves claiming to be great Europeans and, and great fans of the EU were, I think, acting in quite a lot of bad faith and were doing it in order to discredit Corbyn and to create this kind of moral wedge to muddy the water around Corbyn. The anti-Semitism affair had quite a lot of the same structure. It was a way of, 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 of breaking that kind of, um, that very good position that Corbyn had in 2017, which was Brexit is happening and the left needs to organize its economic response and cultural response around it. Not try to um, not try to, to to resist it. So then, that that gets into this issue of uh, technocracy, and I, I think it's something we see in the U.S. too. I mean, I, I mainly cover a lot of um, foreign policy issues, and I've I've noticed that you know increasingly, I think there are elements of the left that will write off any criticism of the U.S. foreign policy establishment. Uh, coming from the left is 
uh, well, they, they use this smear tanky, which mm-hmm. I, I think is unfair or even, uh, I, I mean, I've even heard the term, uh, you know, isolationist or crypto isolationist used uh, to smear people that uh, have a dissenting view on the way foreign policy is carried out in the U.S. Um, and, you know, anyone who is critical of what I would call the U.S. foreign policy blob. And it, to me, it seems like uh, there is this real desire to say, get in line a lot of times and don't question the, uh, you know, elites. And that's another thing I've noticed, too, is uh, apparently elites now is a term that people really don't like. They say, oh, well, the right uses that, uh, even though it's been a term used by sociologists like C. Wright Mills uh, in the past. Um, and I, I just find it all very confusing how we've gone in this direction of, you know, uh, oh, we can't do this because uh, the right says this. It's it's very strange. Yeah, no, you're, you're totally right. And, and on almost every one of those issues, the prevailing liberal left um, position is the opposite of the truth. I, I mean, it seems clear to me that some kind of anti-imperialism is a great untapped electoral resource. Um, it was a huge part of Trump's 2016 campaign that there is an anti-imperialism of the right. And a lot of Trump's biggest supporters were highly disappointed in him when he listened to the um, when he effectively sucked up to the um, neocon hawks uh, that he appointed for, for some godforsaken reason and went into bombing Syria. I feel like at that point it was it was quite clear that what Trump's election revealed was that there was a relatively unexplored kind of space of left and right agreement on uh, the absolutely discredited um, interventions of the 90s and the 2000s. And to take a, a, a British example, Corbyn is, is very interesting here. During the 2017 election campaign, where um, which uh, was the one that saw Corbyn rob the Conservative Party of their majority, get 40% of the votes, the best result since uh, Tony Blair's heyday. Um, during that campaign, there were several terrorist attacks. Uh, one of them, an absolutely appalling uh, bombing in Manchester at an Ariana Grande concert where scores of children were killed. And Corbyn, against the advice of uh, those around him, gave a speech an explicitly anti-imperialist speech saying that terrorism in the West is in a a kind of a toxic uh, spiral with our interventions uh, abroad, and this should discredit our whole kind of foreign policy consensus. And everyone said, oh, this is it. It's it's all over. Uh, It's all over for Corbyn. But actually, a majority of people agreed with him, despite the fact that you'd never read these opinions in the mainstream press. And the majority of the right agreed with him. The majority of Tory supporters agreed with him. Today, we hear in kind of uh, post-mortems of the Corbyn project that it was, okay. it was fine that that many on the left couldn't ultimately support Brexit because borders are immoral, 
uh, immigration that was part of the Brexit discourse is immoral. Um, but you need to abandon anti-imperialism. You need to abandon the critique of foreign policy. Actually, it's the other way around. And, and the, the, the critique of foreign policy had the potential to be rightly very popular indeed. Uh, if only that could have been a greater focus than trying to put, you know, uh, uh, police um, opinion on, on, on Brexit. So, uh, yeah, that, that tanky charge um, is at best hugely self-defeating because it's a way of keeping out of um, the left's discourse. Something that- Well, it also, not, not to interrupt you, but yeah, it also, yeah. I, I think it gives a monopoly uh, to the right, you know, it gives them yeah. a monopoly on the sort of questioning uh, of the foreign policy consensus, and I, I don't think that's good either. Well, this is this has been the whole drift that in 2016, 2017, the Bernie and Corbyn projects could be seen as a kind of left populism in direct response to the emergence of right wing populism, and the gesture, as I understood it, and this is what led me to become very involved and to spend a hell of a lot of time trying to make sense of it, trying to promote it, becoming a sort of uh, unofficial voluntary propagandist for it. The way I understood it was that our claim was that Trump and, and Brexit are what you get if you pursue the kind of neoliberal policies that both parties have been pursuing for decades. Uh, they are fully justified in quite a lot of their critique but the answers that they give, the solutions that they offer, either are wrong or won't go far enough. And it falls to the radical left to step in to offer solutions to, that, to, to, to those populist questions. That like starting point that said the election of Trump is totally predictable, understandable, and given what he was offering, justifiable, that disappeared and was replaced by the radical left being a kind of moralizing subsidiary of the so-called liberal center. We, we, we became um, the people who were simultaneously trying to tell Trump supporters, Brexit voters, yeah, we agree with a lot of your analysis and we've got the policies that are actually going to materially change your lives. We, unlike the right, actually mean it. We went from doing that to joining this kind of discourse policing and joining this kind of moralizing attack on those supporters who we, we broke the deal basically and th that was the kind of anti-populist drift of the Corbyn and Bernie projects um, in, in my view. The fact that in the Bernie 2020 uh, campaign you had okay the same old kind of Bernie solutions to the, the Bernie answers to the Trump questions but you also had this idea that Trump was a, a kind of unique, evil figure, a fascist, white supremacist who had to be deposed at all costs. Th that was not the script. <laughs> that was not where we started out. And you couldn't do those two things simultaneously. You couldn't be at once, you know, a rival radical interloper, a left populist, and somebody who ultimately agreed with Nancy Pelosi on Russia Gates on Trump's, you know, immoral, uh, uh, unique kind of evil. Any more than you could both want to be the rebel Corbyn and 
defend the British institutions and so on uh, that, that wanted to stop Brexit. So when we talk about the term populist, I, I've also become, uh, I would say, annoyed in some ways with the sort of mainstream usage of that term because I, it's used so vaguely. I don't know what a lot of uh, people in mainstream political discourse even mean by it anymore because uh, it, it seems like there's this view that uh, all populism is the same. There's not different types uh, of populisms. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah, so, I mean, populism is, is speaking for the people and speaking for the people means creating a people, <laughs> you know, uh, create you know, in the very act of saying, of, of talking to the people, you turn that bunch of bodies, folks, and whatever, into a coherent political unit. And you set that against elites. Uh, okay, that may be a simplifying picture, but sometimes things are that simple. Um, and yeah, the, the way it's tended to be used recently is to say, anyone I don't like is a populist. That's why I called my book, Other People's Politics. Uh, you know, bad people like Trump and, and Nigel Farage and, and uh, Le Pen and so on are populists, whereas proper good politicians, um, uh, uh, Tony Blair, Obama, <laughs> Hillary Clinton, whatever, are, are, are not. But actually, um, I, I would claim that in a situation where class has kind of decayed as a form of political explanation, when people identify with their class less and less and the way that work, the means of production is organized, less and less lends itself to clarity on this is the working class, this is the bourgeoisie, etc. You end up having to resort to a language of people versus elites in order to create any kind of um, uh, uh, electoral or, or, or political unit whatsoever. Everybody under such circumstances is a kind of populist. Tony Blair, the very kind of icon of technocratic centrism, anti-Brexit, anti-Trump, he's you know, anti-populism, he referred to New Labour in the 1990s as the political wing of the British people. He spoke of Princess Diana as the people's princess. He uh, was constantly invoking the people against the elites. And that's not a, a criticism. I think every successful politician under these circumstances has to do it. So populism uh, is, is actually a kind of, I would say it's a diagnosis of a situation where you can no longer so easily say my political faction speaks for a particular class. So you're always having to create this slightly more haphazard coalition. It's also a strategy for dealing with such a a, a situation for dealing with a situation where most people are tremendously disempowered in their lives. And actually the simple fiction of the people versus the elites is as true as any um, when it comes to mobilizing people to political action. So I think that populism is a perfectly decent diagnosis and also a, perf a perfectly decent strategy. Also, you know, I, I think the discourse around uh, elites is rather interesting in its own way, because, you know, I, I think you're right. There is this sort of uh, support that gets thrown 
towards uh, technocrats. Uh, but the question that is never really addressed, and I, I've talked to Thomas Frank, he mentioned earlier about this, is, well, what happens when elite failure occurs or, or technocratic failure? And I, I think we saw that with uh, Tony Blair and the Iraq War. Uh, and it seems like elite failure gets just completely swept under the rug. Yeah, well, I mean, look at look at the COVID situation. That that seems a pretty kind of excellent example of um, of technocratic failure. Um, the uh, and and it's also a kind of example of a certain kind of divide within elites. Um, if I can get on to uh, the, the left response to. COVID-19 and, and my maybe most contentious claim in the piece that uh, the left's support until very recently um, for maximal containment measures um, uh, uh, fits with the pattern that I'm describing. Um, the kind of the favorite myth uh, among the left in Britain, um, among many people in Britain, is that because elites early in 2020 put off locking down. Boris Johnson didn't want to lock down. He wanted to protect the economy. So he left it too late. And so the disease spread through the country. And then by the time we did lock down, it was too late. This is a, this is a myth with a tremendous hold that, that the, the kind of these greedy genocidal elites uh, refused to do the follow the science and do the sensible thing of pursuing lockdown, and, and that's why we have the troubles that we do. I don't see that that's borne out by any comparison in the long-term kind of, uh, any comparison of, of the long-term effects of countries that did lock down right away or didn't. Um, it'll come out in the wash, but all of them have, have, have pretty kind of damaging results. Nobody has weathered this particularly well outside, out and out, Autocratic countries that that that, uh, that 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 did have the state's uh, power and capacity to um, really police them in in a, in a hope to me wholly undesirable way. The the left has kind of acted like it's calling for lockdowns mandates against an elite that is refusing to give them. But this seems completely crazy to me um, when actually what that has involved is offering unlimited moral cover to the most massive um, grab of emergency powers, which are not going to go away uh, by elites, the most extraordinary um, kind of bowing down and empowering of private health corporations, of, of, of pharma corporations, which the British left spent the 2019 election uh, denouncing and decrying. Uh, Corbyn even sort of played Assange or Snowden, holding up redacted documents, proving that Boris Johnson wanted to sell the NHS to these people, who we now treat as heroes. Um, and um, yeah, not to, not to mention the enormous upward movement of wealth, most of all to tech companies, which, you know, when we're not calling for more lockdowns, we're, you know, reading clever verso books about how evil digital platforms are. So it, it, it's really been a kind of error about the nature of elites that 
that um, has characterized the left response to COVID, where we've thought we've been rebelling against elites by demanding that the people are protected by lockdowns, when actually we've simply been siding with one side in an intra-elite conflict. On the one hand, you have old-style libertarians in the States, old-style paleo-Thatcherites in Britain, who represent the landlords who own the office blocks, who represent medium-sized and larger businesses. On the other hand, okay, it's easy to hate them, just as it's easy to hate Brexiteers. Uh, not to interrupt you, but th- this is what you yeah. meant when you said a sort of a, a national petty bourgeois, just for my listeners yeah. that were unfamiliar with that term, yeah. Yes, 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 yeah, it, it, exactly. So because we're, we're very used to decrying and hating that side of things and, and find that very easy, um, we're, we make the mistake of thinking that we're defending our own you know, radical left interests when actually we are very often being kind of a fig leaf for the other side, new style neoliberalism, uh, the you know get in the pod and eat the bugs style neoliberalism, which wants everybody working from home, wants everybody um, just getting packages delivered uh, and wants everybody plugged in to um, the, to, to uh, the, these uh, digital platforms at all times. So in thinking that we're defending something that is in any way social democratic or, or even leftist, uh, we have simply been facilitating, and, and this is my biggest accusation in the piece, facilitating a transition from the existing form of neoliberalism to one that threatens to be even more exploitative and alienating than the last. And if that sounds, I don't know, like overly cruel or pessimistic, it's not like it hasn't happened before. Go back to the old new left of 68. Look at how the failure of that 1968 new left coincided with victorious elites suddenly starting to speak its language. This is the whole story of how hippies became yuppies. This is the story that Nancy Fraser uh, tells in in her brilliant, um, uh, it's in the book Fortunes of Feminism, uh, the essay called uh, On the Cunning of History, the way in which the new left, second wave feminism, actually ended up finding that its critique of social of post-war social democracy got scooped up by neoliberalism and imitated and used in other words the new left in its in its in its defeat facilitated the um step into an even more exploitative form of capitalism the left's uh support for maximal lockdowns maximal covid measures and unlimited moral cover for them uh, threatens to repeat precisely that pattern. That is why I say in the piece that a defeated left is a dangerous thing. It's not just dangerous to itself. It's one thing if we pursue unpopular, anti-populist uh, niche policies that ruin our chances of ever returning. I can forgive that. It's when we start using the um, using the political capital that we accrued in the Corbyn and Bernie years and using it to promote a new kind of neoliberalism that I think we really need to take a look at ourselves. And I think that's an important point you made earlier that, you know, there there was this uh, trajectory where we went from uh, 
sort of social democratic values, um, you know, the New Deal, LBJ's mm-hmm. Great Society, to uh, the neoliberalism of, I, I would say, Thatcher and Reagan, and then the third way with Bill Clinton. And that, that was a, a sort of different kind of capitalism. And I, I would say it wasn't better. So it can happen again. Yeah. Um, Nancy Fraser puts it this way. What were the characteristic new left critiques of that great society in Britain, welfare state? What were the critiques? They were that it was economistic. It only measured liberation, uh, improving living standards on the basis of rising wages. It didn't pay attention to other forms of oppression that exist. It was androcentric. Its elementary unit was the male worker with the housewife at home. It was um, technocratic. It wanted to empower the state and state-run industries, and it was Westphalian. It was, uh, it believed in the nation state as the important kind of unit of political management. All of those have great and justified and brilliant new left critiques of them. But when the new left was defeated, what succeeded it was perfectly comfortable with all of those critiques. Neoliberalism said, fine, yeah, we won't use uh, wages as a measure for uh, a successful society. Don't worry, women can enter the workplace too. And both of you are going to have your wages halved. Uh, Yeah, the nation state shouldn't be the elementary unit. Let's have totally global corporations that are outside democratic control. Uh, Yes, state technocracy is bad. We'll sell off all of those um, uh, uh, structures in in, in privatization. Um, Precisely the left critique of the post-war consensus uh, 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 was picked up by an even worse form of capitalism. And yeah, if, if, if I wasn't clear, that is exactly what the left is calling for. Every time it says that we should have another lockdown instead of protesting and demanding greater health infrastructure. Every time it supports vaccine mandates and participates in the demonization of this, frankly, irrelevant um, minority of of, of people, of, of unvaccinated people, every time it participates in that, it's encouraging our transition to a more rigorously controlled um, form of state and a, a much more exploitative form of state. So then you, you mentioned uh, the, the most contentious part of your piece at, at Jacobin being the uh, issues with lockdown and, and the pandemic and how it's been uh, dealt with, how, how the left has viewed it. Um, could you elaborate on what, what have the responses been to it and what have your, have, have you made any responses to those critiques or, or the parts that people find contentious? Well, yeah, I mean, on the popular shows since we started, uh, really, we've been um, at least entertaining anti-lockdown voices for, for over a year now. Uh, and before Christmas, we put out a, a mini-series of, of uh, discussions with academics on the harms of lockdown, because I guess part of our position is that um, all of the kind of discourse around lockdown has been focused on protecting people from COVID, very little of it 
has been dedicated and it's even been kind of almost uh, seen as a dangerous thing to even talk about um, the, the harms that the, the, the lockdown has uh, has perpetuated. So, yeah, we've, we've been slightly friendlessly covering that for a long time. And really, um, the, the experience I've had is not so much that people viciously attack you over it as they would over Brexit and over anti-Semitism and some of these other kind of um, like really hotly debated things on the left in recent years, it's been much more common for people to totally ignore it. Um, there has been a kind of a role taken by people on the left that they think it's their job to police COVID sceptics as opposed to actually questioning what the government's doing. Um, but by and large, when people on the left come out with uh, COVID critical um, positions, they're much more likely to be ignored. And I think that's partly because maybe on some level people know that this is going to look very bad in retrospect and that the harms and the damage is going to be very evident in retrospect. And people are slightly, un people would rather just kind of sit it out than actually speak about it. As it happens since I published this piece and since we did that series on the popular show, um, kind of in the run up to Christmas when it seemed like we were going to end up having another lockdown in the UK, um, something that has been prevented by uh, the revelation of Boris Johnson's attending all these and hosting all these parties uh, during previous lockdowns. Um, in the run up to that lockdown, it seemed like some kind of major figures on the left in Britain who have been really dedicated to, um, you know, uh, arguing for maximal COVID measures, they seem to change their tune a bit and they seem to kind of slightly uh, back down on it. So I, I have been saying for a while that um, especially now that you have, you know, so many people vaccinated, um, and now that it, now that some of the harms of lockdown are, are becoming more evident, we've been saying for a while that you're going to see a lot of people changing their mind on this, uh, it, 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 even if it involves a bit of a climb down from the very kind of emotive positions that people have taken up in the past. But yeah, but by and large, it, it, it's very interesting. There is not much of a culture of debate on this, as has been true all along, there is a bit of evidence of people sort of just quietly shifting their position. But um, no, but by and large, this uh, the, the piece was <laughs> fell stillborn and, and has been broadly ignored as far as its critique of uh, COVID measures is concerned. It's interesting, too, because I've heard you on other shows talk about the um, COVID measures. And it, I thought it was interesting that the tact you took when talking about um, some of these scientists and, and academics uh, that, that may have been in favor of uh, things like lockdowns. And I think the point that you made is you can understand why from their field they would be saying this, um, especially because they have very specific concerns. They're like uh, thinking about how do we eradicate the virus? Uh, but you would say there's also political considerations at work too that they may not be considering because it's not within their field. Well, yeah, I mean, within the science community, um, you know, I, I, I talked to David Bell, who is uh, he was a scientist who was, who was in the WHO in the early 2000s, and, and he's, he's worked in labs for Bill Gates. So, you know, he's seen all this from the inside, and he described how the first kind of big SARS outbreak in the early 2000s, you know, there was a feeling among his colleagues like, okay, this is how we're going to make our careers. And I'm not saying that everyone is as cynical as that, but it, 
you you look at what's happened over the course of the 2000s and the way in which pandemics big and small indifferently have been the total focus of public health you know it, it, i would compare it to the way in which you know all the funding for animal for saving animals goes to polar bears and pandas and not to plankton the plankton are actually more important but it's these kind of iconic animals that everyone loves that you're going to make your career with similarly pandemics have this kind of charisma about them and people have wanted to work with them and work on them and the billionaires who now provide most of the funding to the who uh you know bar one state the united states uh, of america you know they want to be involved in pandemics they don't want to be involved in boring things like malaria uh, and hiv so there is that within the science community i i think that's only natural that if you kind of let this sort of private interest drift and let this culture of people making their careers in these sectors as kind of Instagram influencers rather than anonymous toiling scientists, that's going to happen. What really disturbs me is the way, you know, okay, I'm being hard on the radical left here, but it's really a failure of the entire bourgeoisie, the entire bourgeois intellectual sphere that people have not seen it as their task to stand up for their discrete area of expertise or their discrete area of professional interest and say, okay, these measures are going to affect my sector in this way. Instead, everybody has seen it as their kind of professional opportunity to get ahead in their little sector on the basis of becoming as paid up COVID extremists as possible. So you've got um, scientists who specialize in malnutrition. Are they there saying lockdowns in India and Africa, lockdowns in the poor world are going to worsen malnutrition? No, they're saying, oh, forget about what I said about malnutrition. We've got to have lockdowns. We've got to defeat COVID. COVID's the worst thing ever. Uh, charities that um, work on like child marriage in Africa. Uh, talking to a, a, a friend toby green about this on on, on the popular show um the, the child marriage has just absolutely exploded in africa this was something that decades and decades of work charities have been reducing and it, it's absolutely exploded in the last couple of years why because these kids are not going to school these kids can't go into business so they end up getting married off to some local guy because their family can't afford um to to to, to keep them and are we hearing complaints about the effect that lockdown is having on child marriage from the child marriage campaigners? No, they're silent. Uh, even in academia, um, you know, specialists on Foucault and Agamben, people who, if they know anything, know that the history of public health crises is the history of states grabbing more power for themselves and justifying it on the basis of biology. I, I, I was going to say real quick, I mean, yeah. I think Agamben, if, if I remember correctly, he, he wrote a whole piece on the, the lockdowns and there was a very angry reaction towards it. Yeah, exactly. And OK, I mean, it's not it's not my job to defend Agamben and what, what he has to say. But what was startling was that Agamben was applying Agamben uh, to the situation perfectly accurately. And were people, were people who had made their whole careers on the basis of studying or translating Agamben and, and, and Foucault and biopolitics before that, did they say, okay, yes, according to my specialism, according to my discrete area of interest, this analysis of lockdowns is, is the right one? 
or at least bears listening to. No, they were totally embarrassed. They washed their hands and said, no, we need a new theory of biopolitics that justifies the current regime. Everybody has become a kind of courtier. The, the, this has been an absolute, you know, it's been a dereliction of the radical left, but even worse, it's been a dereliction of bourgeois professionals who have completely abandoned any claim that they have something important to offer according to their discrete area of expertise and instead have just become, as I say, courtiers for this new model, this totally new model with no precedent whatsoever in um, the history of public health. Overnight it's been invented and everybody has to pretend that it's the science. Everybody has to pretend that it's uh, the normal thing, that uh, any other consideration has to be um, relegated below. So there's just two more things I wanted to hit upon, um, if we could. The first is, you know, in thinking about the pandemic and the pandemic response, I, I've thought sometimes to myself, I mean, with the work I do, I do this show full time, uh, you know, about three or four shows a week and then, you know, other journalistic endeavors. You know, I, I don't know that I've been as as deeply affected by the pandemic because I work remotely. Do you think that uh, some on the left and just within the professional classes in general uh, are looking at things from a very specific perspective uh, because maybe they aren't affected by the pandemic response because I've, I've wondered that myself. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, that, that's the reason why um, you're kind of you're, you're bog standard uh, liberal, de you know, dem kind of politics professional has been willing to, you know, get into the, the Fauci fandom, has been willing to uh, demonize anybody who takes a dissenting view on COVID measures. It comes down to the fact that these are people who live in relatively nice houses. Their work is work that maybe they were even doing partly from home anyway. Uh, they're saving on commutes. They're saving on, you know, buying lunches and coffees and so on. They, they, they've paid off credit cards um, in this time. And, yeah, professional class people, by and large, um, have been very happy for the pandemic uh, and the pandemic response to continue. It's not them who have to, uh, you know, continue with their job, working in supermarkets, doing deliveries in increasingly, you know, dystopian and, and bizarre and alienated conditions and, and during lockdown, not even able to go for a pint afterwards, uh, even though they're with the exact same people they've been working with all day. It's not them who's affected by that. So. Yes, I, I do think that something of the, you know, the the, the PMC thesis uh, of, you know, the left increasingly being led by people not from the working class, not from the trade union movement, but rather from this kind of intellectual class. I think it does apply. That's not to say that, you know, everyone in the Bernie project and the Corbyn project was some sort of, you know, you know, PMC person living in some great house. It also applies, yeah, to people, you know, living the kind of lifestyle that you just described, where, you know, okay, they're not affluent, okay, they're not particularly secure, but they, um, they are used to um, a fairly kind of flexible form of work. So, um, 
I, 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 I do think there's something to be said for, and they have saved money on not having to, you know, commute to various places and so on to, to work. So, yeah, I think there is quite a simple material kind of port in the attitudes that people have taken towards lockdowns. The other thing is that, you know, if, if, we, if, if the Corbyn and Bernie projects uh, had a huge base in, yeah, these sort of downwardly mobile millennials, of which you and I are, are both um, examples, um, you know, just think about the fact that, that, that those kind of aspirational but not successful kind of people, that, that post-2008 generation, much more unlikely than their elders to have kids. So much more unaffected by the absolute disaster of school closures, much much less affected too by the absolute disaster of having you know kids locked in the house all day, which is <laughs> awful and traumatizing for both parents and children. So I, I think that there has been a sort of, a, 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 either for reasons of privilege or for reasons of a specific kind of non-privilege, um, the, the people who tend to be the dominant voices on, on the radical left today um, have maybe been shielded from a diverse range of bad things about lockdown and have, have also had a kind of material incentive to drink the Kool-Aid, really, on, on being you know, maximally um, hyperbolic about, about uh, the kind of COVID measures that are desirable or, or needed. And then the last thing I wanted to touch upon was you mentioned uh, the big tech issue. And I'd, I've been thinking about that lately because I know a lot of people will say, well, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's important that we deplatform a, a lot of these voices, voices of whom even I would consider vile people like um I'm not, you know, a fan of Alex Jones or anything like that. But what I find interesting is, uh, yes, we've successfully uh, deplatformed Alex Jones from Twitter, and now he's started a website called, uh, I think it's Band.Video, uh, and other people are learning about it because uh, there's, you know, leftist YouTube channels that will comment on Alex Jones, or there's people on Twitter. Uh, including leftists that will, uh, you know, make a, uh, a post about, oh, look at the new Alex Jones thing. Isn't he uh, such a crank? And I'm thinking to myself, I mean, this kind of <laughs> negates the whole deplatforming thing. And when I looked at some of the numbers uh, for his new uh, sort of alternative to YouTube platform, they're pretty decently uh, high. So it seems like the whole idea that that big tech can, you know, just stamp out these voices. I think it's really not the case. I was wondering if you could comment on that. I don't know if you thought about it, but. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm still waiting for you to have Alex Jones on, actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, I, I just think that, uh, the, the deplatforming thing is a sign of weakness rather than strength. I, I do think that the that our kind of left, the I think the radical left does have a certain amount of uh, guilt here because in its real years of total weakness, you know, before Corbyn and Bernie came along, it did quite a lot to popularize and cultivate this idea that people with unpleasant views should have their 
platform taken away. And okay, we can deal with these on a case by case basis. But I think in the Corbyn years, we saw some blowback from that. And a lot of the tools that were used against us, particularly on this, the anti-Semitism accusations, were actually tools that the left had legitimated. We'd said that it's legitimate to go through people's social media history and say, this you, you know, uh, uh, and uh, discredit people on the basis of former remarks or associations or whatever. And that was then used against us and used against Corbyn. Um, and really, I, I think that no one on the radical left should be supporting the unaccountable power of tech platforms to decide who gets to speak in our public sphere. And I think it's a sign of weakness rather than strength that anybody would do so. Again, you know, I'm a 2017 man. In 2017, the people I knew who supported Corbyn weren't interested in that. We didn't care about whether people listened to Steve Bannon or Alex Jones because we felt confident that we could win people away from them. You know, we felt we had the confidence that we had the answers, we had the charisma, and we looked like we were having a good enough time that we thought that we could win people over. And we did win, you know, 15% of uh, UKIP voters uh, went over to Corbyn in 2017, which is crazy in retrospect. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think- I, I guess though, left- not, not to interrupt you, but I, I guess my point is, uh, even on a very pragmatic level, I don't think uh, big tech crackdowns have actually, I mean, maybe they've had a little bit of an effect on on Alex Jones and, and, and these other figures, but they really haven't gone away. They're still there and they, they still have, I think people underestimate their influence at times. I mean, Alex Jones hasn't gone away. Steve Bannon hasn't gone away. It's, it's not as if getting these people off Twitter has actually done what uh, I, I think elements of the left and centrists thought it would do in the first place. I mean, they're still here with us. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're still here. And of course, um, these, you know, this, this, the centrist platforms and centrist uh, media companies, you know, don't need, they don't want those people to actually vanish. They don't want Trump to actually go away. They want the performance of the deplatforming and then you know, them cropping up on some other platform because they're in a symbiotic relationship. As soon as the radical, these radical right oddballs um, totally vanish, then the the libs no longer have their their great villain um, uh, uh, to fight. So yeah, I, I think that it is theatre, and I think that it is fake. Um, but I also think that it is completely dangerous uh, and c- completely absurd uh, for anyone on the left to be wanting to empower uh, unaccountable private companies to decide who gets to speak and who doesn't. And, you know, I don't mind saying that Twitter's banning of Donald Trump will will be looked back on as as an appalling anti-democratic exercise. The man won the presidency and the little shits at Twitter uh, uh, are, are, are the people who get to judge whether he can he can speak. I, I don't think that's right at all. And I think that if Corbyn or Bernie had one, as soon as they started questioning the foreign policy consensus, you would have seen the exact same tools used against our people. So I'm totally against the left as discourse police. I think the left, the only left I'm interested in is one that um, has an appealing enough 
majoritarian platform and a libidinal enough presentation of that platform that it doesn't need to worry about deplatforming and silencing others. It has the confidence in its own platform uh, to win people over. And I'm afraid to say that, um, as I say in the piece, on issue after issue since the defeat of Corbyn and the defeat of Bernie, we have been doing the opposite of that, basically. So I think this has been a fascinating conversation. I can already tell that there's going to be at least one or two listeners that uh, probably will take issue with uh, the conversation. Uh, and I, I was wondering what you would say to, uh, you know, the, the sort of people that have a knee-jerk reaction uh, to what you're saying and anything else you want to maybe get out there in closing. Well, it depends what the knee-jerk is. <laughs> um, you know, no one ever wants to debate me, so I just think I've been allowed to think I'm saying normal things. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Well, you know, it, it needs to be about debate, doesn't it? We, we lost. We have lost. And the, the lack of leadership by the successors to Corbyn and Bernie, the socialist campaign group of MPs in Britain, the squad in the US, the absolute lack of leadership we're getting from them shows that we, we lost twice, okay? We lost in the way that it wasn't a big surprise that we lost. We took on the state, we took on uh, the elite, we took on uh, the media, and, and we didn't manage to win. Okay, that I can forgive. It's the fact that there's been no legacy, that the, the successors to, um, to to those movements and moments have, 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 have offered no leadership whatsoever. Um, and the least we can have is free discourse and free debate about what to do next. Um, the idea that you know a response to losing should be to shrink ourselves yet more is just a total insane tragedy to me. And like I said, is there anything else that maybe I missed in the course of this conversation that you felt was uh, important to get out there uh, or just closing thoughts? Yeah, sure. Well, no, you're, you're an expert interview. I could interview it. I can tell you've done this before. Uh, no, I, I think we've drawn out what I wanted to say, but um, let me just offer the checklist one more time. So you don't have to agree, uh, listeners, with my assessments of any of the issues that we've discussed. But what I would like to stress is that any issue that we're dealing with, just run through in your mind, am I being anti-populist here? Am I assuming that most people won't actually end up agreeing with my good left solutions because they are inherently uh, reactionary or racist or fascist and could never be one round. Am I being hyper-partisan? Am I thinking that despite all the evidence against the Democrats and against the Labour Party, that the real enemy in society is the Republicans or the Conservative Party? Am I being hyper-partisan and not attending to the fact that neoliberalism was a bipartisan project? Am I retreating from class here? Am I looking for ways uh, in which I can make other kinds of um, political compact or other kinds of coalition uh, that stops me from centering uh, the most exploited uh, in the current means of production? And am I siding with Davos class, Jeffrey Epstein class globalism because I hate uh, petty bourgeois uh, Boat dealership, um, MAGA, Brexit, um, uh, uh, nationalism. Uh, run through, <laughs> I just want people to run through that checklist. And if you're answering yes to those questions, if you are practicing socialism from above, then you are at best ruining your own chances and at worst 
you're aiding a transition to an even more exploitative form of neoliberalism. I want to thank you again, James A. Smith, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with your work and the popular show? Well, you can check out um, the book I did for Zero Books, Other People's Politics, Populism to Corbynism, uh, and more recently, a book I did for Zed Books with Marila Fanabeka, which is called Work, Want, Work, Labour and Desire at the End of Capitalism. And you can find the popular show uh, at uh, the popular pod uh, on Twitter uh, and um, and on, on Patreon too, and wherever you can find podcasts. We'd love to have you as a listener. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Michael Hudson on his book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, and James A. Smith of The Popular Show. As always, if you appreciate the work I do here at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier, with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. And of course, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shoutout. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Matthew Ho, and the Mirror Framework, a project headed up by Dr. Ye Tao that is doing rather interesting work on possible solutions for the climate change crisis. If you'd like to get your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of the show, well, then consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.